Hello and welcome to another episode of the It's a Crime O'Clock Somewhere podcast. This is episode 16. Today I will be talking about the sleepwalking murder, also known as the case against Scott Felater. My sources for today's episode are the 2020 episode titled While He Was Sleeping, Heavy.com, ABCnews.go.com, Oxygen, CBS News, and the blog Forensic Files Now. As usual, all my sources will be linked in today's show notes. Scott Felater was born in Chicago and he met Yarmila when he was 20 years old. They married in 1976 and they both grew up Catholic but later converted to the Mormon faith. Scott, Yarmila, and their kids, Megan, age 15, and Michael, age 12, moved to Phoenix, Arizona for Scott's job. Scott was an engineer at Motorola and taught seminars at the LDS church, and Yarmila stayed home with the kids. They were a very loving couple, so no one would have ever thought something tragic was about to happen. On Thursday, January 16, 1997, Michael said he remembers that they had a family dinner and Scott went on the computer afterwards to prepare for his seminar. The kids went to bed around 9 p.m. Scott said he was really tired as well and wanted to go to bed. However, Yarmila asked him to fix their pool pump first. Scott agreed, but he never fixed it. He said the pump was stuck and he'd worry about it the next day. He said Yarmila had fallen asleep watching ER and he kissed her goodnight. Stephanie Reedhead and Greg Coons were the Filator's neighbors. They said they weren't nosy, but around 10 to 10.30 p.m., they heard what sounded like crying or moaning. Greg looked over the fence and saw Yarmila. He first thought that maybe she had just gotten drunk and was just passed out. He then said he saw several lights going on and off in the house and saw Scott walk outside, drag Yarmila into the pool, and hold her underwater. Greg then ran inside and called 911. Here's a bit of the transcript from the 911 call. 911 dispatch. 911, what's your emergency? Greg, I don't know. My neighbors. There's a bunch of yelling and screaming going on. I looked over the fence and the husband just threw, I believe the wife, into the pool and it looks like he's holding her underwater. 911, okay, I'll get somebody out there. Greg, thank you. Greg stayed on the phone with the operator until the responding officer arrived. The police arrived and Officer Stanowitz with the Phoenix PD was one of the responding officers. He said when he arrived, he found Yarmila floating in the pool. That was now a pinkish red color. He described it as, quote, reminiscent of a shark attack, end quote. Scott was unaccounted for at first, but he was eventually found on the stairs. He was wearing a white t-shirt and plaid pajama bottoms. Scott asked the police what was going on, and he appeared confused. The police were yelling at him to get on the ground. They even had their guns out. Scott was eventually handcuffed, and he told the police that his kids were in the house. Michael said he remembers the police waking him up around 1 a.m., and the police walked the kids out the front door. They were told that their mom had died after a fight with their dad. Michael was confused because he said his parents didn't fight. Meanwhile, Scott was uh, put into the police car and was taken to the station for his interview. Detective John Norman interviewed Scott. Here's a little clip of the interrogation. He is almost in a fetal position, curled up in that corner, looking stunned, disbelieving that he's in this situation. And he just seemed to meekly accept what Detective Norman was saying, was that you just murdered your wife. This interrogation is unusual. A lot of suspects might say, no way, you got the wrong guy, I would never. But Scott just keeps saying, I don't remember. I'm sorry, I don't remember doing it. You remember more than that. 
Well, my approach with Scott was not if you did it, it's why you did it. We we're trying to look for a motive why he did it. Looks to me like he's been caught in a trap, trying to figure a way out. It's to, to me. You know, he never looks at me when he's talking to me. He's got his head on the wall, he's got his hands up like this. He's very evasive. All I could say was I don't remember doing anything like that. Nothing that's related to hurting here, hurting your arm at all. Scott's next question to Detective Norman is why he thinks he did it. Detective Norman says, quote, Well, because I had the neighbors staring at your wife while you were doing it, and that's why. End quote. Scott then says, geez. Strangely, there is no blood on Scott's crisp white shirt or his red pajama bottoms, but Detective Norman sees some on his neck. Yeah. He didn't know there was blood on it. I'm sorry, I didn't know there was blood on it. He didn't know it was there. No. I was thinking, you didn't take a good enough shower. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. is slow to respond so you can read that either he's truly disoriented and confused or maybe he's cooking up a defense on the spot scott was arrested and charged with the first degree murder of his wife if convicted he could be facing the death penalty in 1999 two years after his wife's murder scott decided to go public and be interviewed by connie chung with 2020 he wanted to tell his side of the story Connie also interviewed Michael and Megan, who were 100% on their dad's side. Scott told Connie that he wasn't conscious during the murder and wouldn't intentionally murder his wife. On May 24, 1999, Scott's trial began, and it was a media sensation because of Scott's defense. Yes, that's right, Scott and his defense attorney, Michael Kimmerer, said he killed his wife and had no memory of it because he was sleepwalking that night. The prosecutor was Juan Martinez, a.k.a. the man who prosecuted the case of Jody Arias. Juan's opening statement was that Scott baptized his wife into the afterlife. The prosecution had a lot of damning evidence against Scott. The chief medical examiner, Dr. Philip Keen, testified that Yermila was stabbed 44 times. Some of the wounds were defensive wounds and some were fatal. Greg Coons, the neighbor, also testified. He told the court exactly what he told the 911 operator and police. And he also said he saw Scott putting on gloves right before he uh, held Yermila underwater. Detective Robert Bernanski testified that he was one of the officers who stayed behind to search the Filator fa- uh, house after Scott was taken into custody. The police had obtained a warrant for the home. They searched the cars and the garage, and inside Scott's Volvo, the police saw a shirt sticking out of the compartment. 
Inside the compartment, a black garbage bag with a Tupperware container was found. Inside the container was a pair of bloody jeans and a bloody hunting knife, which was later identified as the murder weapon. A sleep disorder expert named Dr. Mark Pressman said sleepwalkers wouldn't have a need to hide the murder weapon or clothes. They probably wouldn't have even remembered what happened. He also said he might have believed the sleepwalking theory if Scott had just stabbed Yermila, but he had drowned her as well and attempted to kill her in another way. For the defense, they also had a pretty good testimony from various people. Scott's sleepwalking past was brought up by his family. His sister Laura said Scott had been violent to her while he was sleepwalking when they were younger and that he threw her across the kitchen. Robert Broughton and psychologist Rosalind Cartwright, who were both sleepwalking experts, both testified for the defense that they believed sleep deprivation and stress could have been the result of Scott killing Yermila. Rosalind said she believed that Scott could have gone out to finally fix the pool pump because he was stressed about it. Yermila came outside and tried to get Scott to come back inside. You know what they say, never wake a sleepwalker, and Scott murdered Yermila thinking she was the threat. Robert Broughton went back on his testimony a little after Juan Martinez cross-examined him. He said he did find it odd that Scott tried to get evidence, oh sorry, tried to hide evidence and used another method to kill Yermila. Michael and Megan both testified as well that their dad wouldn't hurt their mom. Scott himself testified and said it took him weeks to finally admit to himself that he killed Yermila, but he said he didn't do it intentionally. Juan Martinez asked Scott what he meant when he said there was, quote, an unforgivable sin, end quote. Scott said he had talked with a psychologist about it and thinks that he referred to his crime as the unforgivable sin. The trial lasted six weeks and the jury deliberated for eight hours. The first vote was eight to four, eight in favor of guilty and four for not guilty. The second vote was ten to two, so they asked if they could look at the evidence again. After looking at the evidence, they were able to come to a decision. Scott Felater was found guilty of first-degree murder. He would have to wait for his sentencing so he could possibly still get the, the death penalty. Six months later, Scott was back in court. Many people from Scott's church, his kids, and Scott himself begged for his life to be spared. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and today he is residing in an Arizona prison. Here are now some updates from this episode of 2020. In January of 2021, Scott spoke with Amy Roback over video chat. Scott said he had gotten COVID while in an Arizona prison and was just getting his taste and smell back. Amy asked Scott if he still spoke to his kids. Scott said he still has a great relationship with them, but that Megan stopped visiting him because she couldn't handle it anymore. Scott said he doesn't expect to be released anytime soon and has come to terms with it. He said he'll never forgive himself for what happened. It was a murder that shocked the nation. The notorious sleepwalking killer, Scott Felater, stabbed his wife 44 times, then drowned her in the pool. His defense, he was sleepwalking. When Phoenix cops got there, they found Fallader at the top of the stairs in his pajamas. He made remarks to the extent of, what's going on? What are you doing in my house? Why are you here? The case made national headlines due to his novel defense. He was sleepwalking when he killed his wife and didn't remember a thing. Inside Edition was in the courtroom when the sentence was announced. It is ordered the defendant be sentenced to serve the remainder of his natural life in the Department of Corrections. Now, 22 years later, Felater is speaking out for the first time to ABC's Amy Robach 
for a 2020 special airing Friday. Do you believe your wife has forgiven you? I think about uh, what she had to go through that night and uh, the, the pain and the terror she had to feel. I can't even fathom. Uh, so, you know, but I believe that she would be willing to be more understanding and forgiving of me than, than I feel right now about myself. Yes. I just said, what do you say or what do you think of the people who look at you, including those jurors who convicted you, and just say, are you kidding me? There's no way I'm going to buy that. There's no way someone could sleepwalk their way to stabbing someone who they purport to love 44 times and then drown them. He maintains that regardless of how believable it is, it's the truth. I don't know if I believe the sleepwalking case. I agree that it's weird and tragic that Scott stabbed and then drowned his wife and then cleaned up the evidence. It's a lot for someone who's, quote, sleeping. Um, but I also don't know a lot about sleeping disorders either. I do believe Scott is sympathetic for what he did, and he has never said he didn't do it, which is very uncommon for murderers. He has also said he's come to terms with it, but just doesn't remember. I also think it's pretty incredible that Scott and his kids still have a good relationship. My book recommendation for this week is The Au Pair by Emma Ross. Summary. Seraphine Mays and her twin brother Danny were born in the middle of summer at their family's estate on the Norfolk coast. Within hours of their birth, their mother threw herself from the cliffs. The au pair fled and the village thrilled with whispers of dark cloaks, ch channelings, and the aloof couple who drew a young nanny into their inner circle. Now an adult, Seraphine mourns the recent death of their father. While going through his belongings, she uncovers a family photo that raises dangerous questions. It was taken on the day the twins were born, and in the photo, their mother, surrounded by her husband and her young son, is beautifully dressed, smiling serenely, and holding just one baby. Who is the child, and what really happened that day? This is a book that is told from multiple, multiple perspectives and has, a, and has flashbacks from the past and present. A family that has many secrets and a daughter who is searching for answers. Secrets and family seem to be my theme for this week, and this book won't let you down. I hope you enjoyed today's case. It's a little bit shorter, so I apologize, but I'd love to know if you think Scott was sleepwalking or not. I'll be back next week with a brand new case and book recommendation. And remember, it's crime o'clock somewhere.